Good morning, Community Bible Church family, and anyone else who happens to be joining us this Sunday. This brings us to the message part of today's service. If you happen to catch last week's message, I explained that we're going to be studying the life of Jesus, but not looking at it in just one book. Rather, that we're going to be looking at it chronologically, his story as it happened across all four Gospels. Uh, last week we began with the birth, and this week we're going to continue that. But before we do, if you will, please join me in prayer. God, thank you for today. I don't know what the weather is going to be like on Sunday, but right now as I record this, the birds are chirping, the sun is shining, and it's beautiful. I thank you for your nature, your creation, and what it reveals about you. The musical composition of the sounds, the colors of the world around us, the warmth from the sun, just the entire experience of being in your creation is incredible. And so I thank you for that. And now as we prepare to continue to study the life of your son, I ask that you would quiet our minds, quiet our hearts, whatever is distracting us, whatever is weighing on us. In this time, we would come before you just humbly surrendered to whatever it is you want us to learn. We want to be people who know you. We want to be people who can communicate you to the world around us. So God, teach us in this time. Please don't ever let these be my words. We give you everything. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So like I said, last week we looked at the birth of Christ, right? You're starting with the story of a person that seems logical to begin at their birth. And personally for me, there have been plenty of times in the past where I've allowed myself to kind of skip right from birth to baptism, right? He was born and then he was baptized as an adult and he started his ministry. And I kind of gloss over the middle stuff in between there because it seems, you know, when you're talking about Jesus, you're talking about his ministry. That's where I want to spend my time. But over the past couple weeks, God has really been slowing me down as I've been studying Christ's life. And it's, it's been such a blessing to come away with these lessons revealed in that in-between phase. So that's what we're going to be looking at um, this morning. Last week, we looked at the account of his birth in Matthew and Luke. Those are going to be our two primary books again. And if you missed last week's explanation or the preview video from last week, Matthew was written by one of the 12 apostles. Uh, Luke was not written by one of the 12 apostles. Luke was a close companion to the apostles. And so it's neat having those two different perspectives. Luke is much more detail-focused. Matthew was written to a Jewish audience to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah. And so those are kind of the very quick backgrounds of each of those books. But those are going to be the two primary Gospels we find ourselves in today. And before we open up, I want you for a moment to consider ice cream. Right? Think of your favorite flavor. Maybe it's something like vanilla or chocolate. Maybe it's something more extravagant. But think of a bowl of ice cream, right? That is, that's a fantastic dessert. I love ice cream. But it's not an ice cream sundae. It's just a bowl of ice cream. What elevates a bowl of ice cream to a sundae? All the toppings, all the extras that go into it, that go on it, right? All the details. See, details are vastly important. Right? We add personal details to our outfits. It's the personal details that make a generic house feel like your home. We add details to our desk at work or our workspace. We add details to our car right, to make it more personal because we understand that details matter and details add depth. And now don't get me wrong, we can absolutely become too bogged down in the details. Right? That's a very easy trap to fall into that we get so caught up in the details we forget about the big picture. But the details are important. 
we have to find that appropriate balance. And like I said a little bit ago, in the past sometimes I've glossed over these middle details. I've glossed over right the stuff that makes the Sunday the Sunday because I've tried to move from birth to baptism. But in slowing down, I've come away with such a deeper appreciation for those middle sections. And so I want to start with, this will be after Jesus has been born, after the Magi, the three wise men have visited him. And the background with the wise men who visited him, right? There were, there were the, the wise men to visit Jesus. And King Herod had sent them there and told them, hey, when you find out where Jesus is, tell me so I can go see him. But Herod really wanted to kill Jesus. An angel came, revealed that to the wise men. So the wise men didn't didn't tell Herod where Jesus was. Herod responded in a rage, decides to start killing every child in the approximate age range, right? And Joseph gets warned about this. And so that's, that's kind of what has transpired to bring us to, this is Matthew 2, 13 to 15. Now when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And then I want to jump forward, just a couple verses, same chapter, Matthew 2, verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. See, Joseph was originally intending to return to the same place they had come from, right? But Herod's son was reigning there, and Joseph knew it wouldn't be any better, so he didn't go there. And so verse 22, But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he, he, he in this case, being Jesus the Messiah, that he would be called a Nazarene. Those seem like pretty straightforward passages, right? Hey, Herod's going to try and kill the baby. Take him to Egypt. Joseph takes his family to Egypt so that what the prophet said he would come out of Egypt would be fulfilled. Herod dies. Joseph returns to the land, but he knows that that same exact area wouldn't be any better under Herod's son. So they go to Galilee, specifically to Nazareth, as Matthew points out, so that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he, the Messiah, would be a Nazarene. Seems straightforward. But this, this is why we study. I love stuff like this. It's the details of this that are so fascinating to me. Think about it. Think about what Matthew said there, right? To fulfill the prophecy, to fulfill what the prophets wrote. I said that Matthew was written to a Jewish audience to demonstrate that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah, right? Jesus was the coming king, the Messiah, who the prophets had spoken about. So imagine, if you will, someone who wants to discredit the Bible, and they want to discredit the book of Matthew. What would you do if you were trying to take down the book of Matthew? In my opinion, if Matthew is written all about these 60-plus Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, well, simple. Start demonstrating that Matthew was wrong. 
right? Start going after the prophecies that Matthew really built his gospel around. And so I want to look at those prophecies because it's so fascinating to think of how many prophecies Jesus fulfilled when you consider the odds that any random person would fulfill two of them or three of them or five of them, let alone that Jesus fulfilled 60 plus of them. But this week we're just looking at the three about where he was from. Please consider how important that is that a the Messiah was prophesied to be from three different places, right? The level of detail that that adds, because when you add more detail like that, you make it easier for people to refute, because if you can demonstrate that Jesus failed to meet one of these, well, then that calls the whole structure into question, right? And so God in his plan is working perfectly to demonstrate without any doubt who Christ is. We see he was born in Bethlehem, right? Last week we looked at Matthew 2, Luke 2, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We have Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Prophets said Messiah is going to be from Bethlehem, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, check. Then we've got Hosea 11, 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Messiah is going to come out of Egypt. What did we just read in Matthew? Jesus fled to Egypt, or Jesus was brought to Egypt by his father, came out of Egypt. Check. Right? That brings us to Matthew 2.23. That last verse in the section I read. Right? Matthew 2.23 says, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Would it surprise you to learn that never once in the Old Testament does that appear? That in the Old Testament prophecies, no prophet in the Old Testament wrote out specifically, the Messiah will be a Nazarene. It doesn't happen. So why did Matthew say that? And now, don't get me wrong at all, please. I, I want to make sure I stress this. The Bible is the inherent word of God, right? 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active. Uh, what is it? 1 Peter 2.21, um, the prophets did not act of their own accord, but as they were led by the Holy Spirit, right? The word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is God's word. So I believe, without any doubt, that Matthew is correct in writing this. That Matthew is correct in saying, to fulfill what the prophets had said, that he would be a Nazarene. But like I said, this is why we study. Because it's incredible, the detail that God has put into the Bible. So if no prophet specifically said he will be a Nazarene, but Matthew wrote this, and we believe that the Holy Spirit led him to write this, why would he say that? Well, let's look at the word Nazarene. What, do, right, what does it mean, the Messiah will be a Nazarene? What does that mean? Nazarene, someone who comes from Nazareth. So you have Nazarene, Nazareth. Both are forms of the word Nazareth. Okay? The root of Nazareth, where the word Nazareth comes from, is the Hebrew word Netzer. N-E-T-S-E-R. Netzer means a shoot. S-H-O-O-T. Okay? So you have Nazareth equals netzer a shoot. Let's look at Isaiah 11.1. 1. 
There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. We know from the New Testament genealogies that Jesus came from the lineage of Jesse. Right? So here in this messianic verse, this prophecy, there shall come forth a shoot, a netzer, from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Looking at branch, branch is also a messianic title, which further demonstrates that this is a messianic prophecy about Jesus. You have Isaiah 4.2. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Jeremiah 23.5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall raise his, reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Jeremiah says a very similar thing in chapter 33, verse 15. Zechariah 3.8, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. And again, Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. So branch is clearly a messianic title. And then you have Isaiah 11.1 1, that equates this prophesied Messiah, the branch. Okay, another way to refer to this prophesied Messiah, the branch, is this prophesied Messiah, the shoe, Netzer, Nazareth. So you have Messiah equals shoe, shoe equals Nazareth. All right, you've got A equals B, B equals C. But there's more than that, even if that's not enough, right? That's still, I don't know, I'm still not convinced. Okay, let's, let's keep looking at it. Like I said, it's, I love this stuff. I love why we study because we learn things like this, that if we just skimmed over those passages or didn't take the time to dive into them, we wouldn't come away with that same understanding. What else does Nazarene mean? If you referred to someone as a Nazarene, as a Nazareth, what would that be? To put it plainly, not a compliment. It was not a good thing in that time to be a Nazarene, to be from Nazareth. Nazareth was a very small, remote, insignificant city. They, they didn't care about Nazareth. And so they didn't care about the people from Nazareth, right? It was not a badge of honor to be a Nazarene. To be a Nazarene was to be mocked and ridiculed and discounted and rejected, right? It was to be dismissed as, oh, come on, you're a Nazarene. No, you don't count. We don't even consider you. And here's the crazy thing. Jesus' own disciples demonstrated this attitude. This is John 1.46. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? Jesus' own disciples had this predisposition of rejecting a Nazarene on sight. Because it's, it's Nazareth. It's obscure. It's meaningless. We, don't, we make fun of Nazareth. Right? Okay. So we've got Nazareth equals someone who is mocked and, and ridiculed and rejected and kind of cast off, not taken seriously, not considered, not thought of well, right? What else is prophesied about the Messiah in the Old Testament? You have Psalm 22, 6 through 7. And this is perhaps the most famous messianic psalm. I say perhaps, there are a couple ones that are just beautifully about Christ. But you have Psalm 22, verses 6 through 7. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. 
All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Isaiah 49, 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. And Isaiah 53, 1 through 3. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Multiple Old Testament prophets were quite clear that the Messiah would be despised, would be rejected, would be discounted, would be thought of as meaningless, right? That was a Nazareth. The Old Testament prophets were quite clear that the Messiah would be a shoot. A shoot is a Nazareth. Isn't that so awesome? Right? Because if you stop at face value and if you say, well, no, no Old Testament prophet specifically wrote out the Messiah will be a Nazarene. Uh-uh, I'm not taking that verse seriously. Then you're left with such a shallow understanding. But when we take the time to dive into it, right, to unpack it, to peel back the layers, we see, okay, the Old Testament prophets, multiple, were quite clear that the Messiah would be a shoot. A shoot is a Nazareth. Multiple Old Testaments were quite clear that the Messiah would be despised, rejected, cast off, ignored, scorned, mocked. That is a Nazareth. And stuff like that is, I just, I love it. It makes studying the Bible such a joy and a privilege and a pleasure. And it makes me think of those photo collages, right, where they're all made up of little tiny pictures. Because you can look in at just one picture and you can appreciate the detail of that picture on its own. But when you take a step back and you look at it together, it all comes together to form a bigger picture. And the same thing is true of these verses, right? We can study and appreciate Psalm and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah. We can appreciate all those verses on their own. But when we take a step back and we look at how they all come together, we see the more complete full picture. And it's wonderful. We see the full story of God's love for people and how he sent Christ to die for us. And as I said, to start all this, those are details that I'm very frequently tempted to just kind of gloss over in trying to get to the baptism in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But God slowed me down these past couple weeks, and I've spent time studying these verses. And I've come away with such a deeper, richer appreciation for the intricacies of the Bible, how it's woven together to tell the same united story. And then the second half of the transition where you have Jesus being born to Jesus being baptized. The second half of that in between is when Jesus is 12 years old. And that's what I want to look at now. And this is in Luke, still in Luke chapter 2. And if you know me, you know I love questions, right? I, I like learning through questions. I like asking questions. I like pursuing questions. And in that first half of the sermon, there weren't a whole lot of questions. But in this half, we'll, we'll get to plenty. This is Luke 2, 41 to 51. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, and when he, he being Jesus, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. 
And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. There's so much, there's so much to unpack in those verses, verses 41 to 51. And so I want to dive in. And I want to dive in. I want to start with the first thing that jumped out to me as I read through that. It's in verse 44. It says, But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him. But supposing him to be in the group. And the question that this verse, I mean, just convicted me of, the question that I've been asking myself is, do I suppose where Jesus will be? Because this is a theme we see throughout the life and ministry of Christ, right? People put suppositions on, well, we suppose to know where Jesus will be. We suppose to know what he will be doing. And then they're surprised when he doesn't, when he isn't. And so I have to wonder and I have to ask myself, do I approach Christ with the same manner of assuming, well, I know Jesus will be where I left him. So I can go do my own thing. And then when I'm ready, I can go back and I can find him still where he was doing, you know, kind of what I left him doing. The Pharisees and the Sadducees constantly take note as we continue to study and we move into Jesus' ministries in the coming weeks. Take note of how many times the Pharisees and the Sadducees asked these type of questions about Jesus, whether to Jesus directly or to his disciples. of Why is he doing that? Why is he sitting with those people? Why is he eating with those people? Why is he going to that person's house? Why is he letting that person touch him? Why isn't he doing what we think he should be doing? See, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had a mold in their mind, right? They had this idea of this is what the coming Messiah will look like. And Jesus didn't fit that mold. And so they constantly found themselves asking, why isn't Jesus where we think he should be doing what we think he should be doing? And the first people to, to encounter this were Joseph and Mary. We supposed to know where Jesus was. And so when we went back there, we didn't find him. And I have to ask myself, do I do the same thing? Do I assume to know where Jesus will be? Do I assume to presume what he will be doing? Or do I take the time to ask God, God, where are you? I want to be there too. Because think about it. He's not beholden to us. Listen to these verses in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. Where'd I go? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. My thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Keep those verses in mind. We'll see that continue to play out in the conversations that Jesus has with his parents and with the teachers when they do find him. But we have to remember that God is not indebted to us to be where we think he should be. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. So it's not a matter of, Jesus, this is where I think you should be, so I expect to find you there. Mm -mm. God doesn't answer to us. And so his parents go back to Jerusalem, right? And where do they find him? They find him in the temple. But listen to the description of how he was in the temple. I think this is fascinating. Verses 46 and 47. They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. 
And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Two very quick thoughts there. Right, the first thing, the second verse, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. This is another theme that we'll see throughout the life of Christ. The people were constantly amazed at Jesus, both at what he said and the authority with which he said it. They were amazed by Jesus' message, and they were amazed by the person of Christ. And I have to ask myself and be careful, we must always be amazed at both the message of Christ and the person of Christ. We must always be amazed at the truth that God, the creator of the universe, loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us so that we could have eternal life with him. That must amaze us constantly. And we must also always be amazed at the person of Christ. And when I read this verse of all who heard him were amazed, I'm forced to ask myself, have I grown used to Christ? Where I've ceased to be amazed at who he is and what he's done and what he's doing. I want us to be people who are always amazed at the person and the message of Christ. And then also, what do we see about Jesus? He was sitting among the teachers, listening and asking questions. Right? But then it says they were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So clearly it was a dialogue. It wasn't just you know one way where he was just asking questions. He was engaging and replying. Look, if anyone in the history of the world had the authority to step up there and be like, oh, you all sit down, I'm going to talk right now. It was Jesus, even as a 12-year-old. But he understood. right? He understood what was appropriate of a 12-year-old in the position of teachers. And so he sat. And that day, the students sat at the feet of the teachers to listen and to talk to them. right? Jesus modeled respect and dignity. And I just, I think that's admirable. I think it's something that we should imitate. I think it's a fascinating small detail in a verse that it's, it's easy to sometimes just skim over. But let's bring Joseph and Mary back into the conversation. So they find him in the temple. He's engaging with the crowd. Everyone's amazed at him. And now Joseph and Mary talk to him. And what does Mary say? This is verse 48. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Mary says to him, Why have you treated us this way? Do you not know that your father and I have been in distress? Right? I want to be careful here. I'm not throwing Mary under the bus. Look throughout, look at Luke 138, Luke 146 to 49, 219, 251. Mary consistently demonstrates the appropriate heart towards God. Okay, so so what I'm about to say, know that I am not I'm not bashing on Mary here. I get her emotional reaction to this. I can't imagine any parent not reacting like this if their child is missing for three days. Right? I understand Mary's emotional torment. And you who are parents understand it even better than I do. So I, I get Mary's emotional conflict here. What I'm saying is the question that Mary asks, it's challenged me to ask a question of myself. Mary says, why have you treated us this way? And I can't help but ask, do we do the same thing to God? See, Mary didn't just ask Jesus, hey, why are you doing this? You know, I want, I want to understand why you're doing this. She said, why are you doing this to us? Why have you treated us this way? She made it about her and Joseph, right? And I have to ask, when I read that question, the thought that comes into my mind is, oh, do I do this to God? Do I approach situations, and I don't ask God, okay, God, what's going on here? But God, why are you doing this to me? Why, 
This is about me. Why are you doing this to me? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? Why is this affecting me in this way? I have to ask myself, have we done the same thing to God and to Christ? Have we made these situations, have we made this life about us? Because here's the thing, Mary had an earthly perspective, right? Mary said, why have you treated us this way? Your father and I have been looking for you. And Jesus very gently, but very firmly and subtly redirects the conversation. Right? Mary is asking about things from an earthly perspective. Jesus answers from an eternal perspective. Mary says, why have you treated us this way? Your father and I have been looking for you. Jesus answers, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Right? Mary was like, Joseph is your father. Jesus says, no, no, no. I must be in my father's house. Jesus focuses things on the eternal perspective in his reply, right? And that's, that is such an incredible lesson we're going to see in Christ's life time and time again, is that he could not be distracted or swayed from his purpose, from his mission. Jesus, even at the age of 12, knew his identity. He knew God was his father. He knew who he was. He knew why he came. He must be in my, I must be in my father's house. Do you not know this? Jesus understood the brevity of his life, right? Jesus knew that, well, I've got 33 years to get my mission accomplished. I know time is short. I will not be distracted. And I want to quickly ask, do we also, and this is a somber question, I don't ask this lightly, but I ask this seriously. Do you realize how short your life is? Do I realize how short my life is? Listen to this. Psalm 39, 4. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Psalm 90, 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Make me know how fleeting I am. We have to understand how short this life is. Because when we do, we realize it can't possibly be about us. And this goes back to Mary's perspective. Mary and Joseph's perspective was, this is about earthly things. Why have you treated us this way? Jesus replies with, no, this is about an eternal perspective. And again, we see this. Listen to Job 41 through 2. And the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Romans 9:20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Guys, we have been molded by God. We have been made by God. Ours is not the position to say, God, why have you made me like this? Ours is not the position to say, God, why are you doing this to me? Ours is the position to say, okay, God, it's about you. You are the eternal creator. You are Alpha and Omega. It is about you. What can I do to join in on that? The perspective is not, why are you doing this to me? The perspective must be, okay, God. What are you doing for your eternal kingdom and your glory? Give me the wisdom and the courage to recognize it and to join in it, right? That's what I see in this conversation, that Jesus is gearing, is gearing Mary and Joseph towards an eternal perspective. He's answering them from the perspective of it's about God. Because Jesus was, 
I mean, with a laser-like focus, focused on his purpose, to glorify the Lord. He knew why he had come. And so I have to ask myself, am I as focused? And I want you all to ask yourselves, are you as focused in your day-to-day -day life? And every minute detail of who you are, are you focused on the Lord in the same way that Jesus was? To re-quote a verse from last week, but to emphasize a different section. 1 Peter 2.9, right? You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people chosen for his possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. Why are you chosen? Why are you royal? Why are you holy? Why are you his possession? To proclaim his excellencies. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's what Jesus was doing in this story. right? We know that Jesus died as sacrificial lambs do. Right? A sacrificial lamb dies. We know that Jesus died. But he was no less a sacrifice for God in the days that he was living and breathing and walking and talking. His whole life was a sacrifice set apart for the Lord. And I have to ask myself, is my life the same? Am I as focused as Christ was on the eternal glory of God? Not focused on the earthly things, but on the eternal things. And then the last thing that I want to point out in this story, and we briefly touched on it when I talked about Jesus' relationship to the teachers in the temple. This is Luke 2.51. He had just said, Do you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Jesus was submissive to his parents. Right? I've talked about this before in past sermons. We've made submission a negative word. We've made submissive a bad idea. But Jesus modeled the beauty of submission. As a 12-year-old, he recognized the position the teachers in the temple were in, and he respectfully submitted to that. He submitted to the authority that his parents had over him as their earthly child. He submitted. He said, I must be in my father's house. He submitted to God. Later on in this series, we'll look at Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well in Samaria. And the verse that leads up to that says, Jesus had to go through Samaria. And that wasn't a physical had to. It wasn't like their route, their travel route went through Samaria. What it means is he was compelled by the Spirit to go through Samaria. See, Jesus modeled submission for us. He humbly submitted to the guiding of the Holy Spirit, to the purpose of the Father. He respectfully submitted to his parents, recognizing the position they had been placed in over him by God. He demonstrated wisdom in his submission and who he chose to submit to and when he chose to submit to them. Right? And I want us to do the same. I want, I want to reread that final story again. Luke 2, 41 to 51. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. 
His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. When was the last time we considered a 12-year-old kid to be our role model? After taking the time to study this story, God has convinced me that, yeah, that 12-year-old kid's my role model. Right? You look at that story and I ask myself these questions. Do I assume to know where Jesus will be? Do I assume that Jesus will be doing what I think he should be doing? Do I make it about me? Do I say, God, wait a minute, this is about me. Why are you doing this to me? This isn't what I, I thought, this is what I wanted. Or do I take a position of, you know what, God? You show me where you are. You bring me there. I want to do what you're doing, even if it's outside the mold I've got in my mind. Right? Are we focused on earthly things, or are we focused on eternal things? Are we as committed to Jesus, or is we com are we as committed to glorifying God as Jesus was? Do we recognize when we must be humble and submit ourselves? I want to be someone who's willing to sit and listen at the feet of those who have been put over me by God. I want to be someone who understands the beauty of submission, that it's not a weakness, that it's done in love and it's done in respect. I want to be someone who, who's able to answer questions and ask questions and engage in conversations that point to God. Right? I want to be someone, just like the people were listening to this 12-year-old boy speak, I want to be someone who is constantly amazed at Christ. And I want that to be true of our church. And like we looked at in those passages in Matthew, I want us to be people who study the Bible, who know the Bible, who understand the Bible, so that we can share, so that we can answer the questions that people have. We can engage in the conversations and we can realize the beautiful tapestry that all these verses weave together to present. Like I said at the start, in the past I've been tempted to gloss over those details. But it has been a beautiful time of worship over these past weeks studying these sections and just learning more of who Jesus is and God's infinite workings in all of this and the stuff that you know sometimes I just want to flip the page and move on to the more flashy events so as you're looking at okay what does this sermon mean for my life I would challenge you to ask yourself those same questions do you assume to know where God is or are you genuinely interested in, God, you show me where you are, I'll go there and join in what you're doing, even if it doesn't fit what I think. God, I want to listen to you. I want to be amazed by you. God, I don't want to make this about me. Maybe we need to take that approach to our work, to our family relationships, to the neighborhoods we live in. Not, God, why am I here? But, okay, God, why am I here? You have a purpose in all of this. You don't behave arbitrarily. You're doing something. What is it? Because it's not about me, so show me how to make it about you. I want us to be people who, quite frankly, look like 12-year-old Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you 
for your son. We stand in awe at who you are and what you have offered us and what you have done for us. The sacrifice, the living sacrifice that Jesus was up until the very moment where he died as a sacrifice. Teach us to pick up our cross and follow Christ. Teach us to be living sacrifices for you. May this church glorify your name in everything we do. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys have a great week. Um, if you saw the email from you know a couple days ago, we are planning a, an in-person gathering service for May 24th and May 31st, so make sure you're staying in tune for, for updates on that. We'll keep you guys posted as we continue to, you know, kind of identify more of the specifics of that plan, but we cannot wait to see you all. All right, you guys have a great week.